Alright, let me turn the sound thing out. I got the wrong setting. Like we're live. Hoping everybody is well. Uh, shout out to some of you that dropped in a little early. What's going on, going on with you, Black Knight? Red Pill Remastered, what's up? Racer X, what's going on? JLJ, what's the word? Salute to you too, sir. Racer X, appreciate that support. Thank you. Uh, See Z14, what's going on? Urban Warlock. All right, let some people come in here. Man Friday, Enigma, what's going on? Charles Irby, the one. What's up, folks? Q James, I'm well, sir. Hoping you're well as well. Uh, Dark Visions, Darker Visions, what's going on? Brother, truth be told, salute. Let folks come in a little bit. Uh, still need to drop something in the chat. Give me one moment. I'm still going through a, a strange little time frame because I didn't wake up, but just a little bit ago, <laughs> my son and I are sleeping all over the clock. He didn't fell asleep on the living room floor playing video games. I'm not quite sure if he went to bed last night. Uh, but you know, the house was clean when I woke up, so I ain't mad at him. So we just trying to get it together a little bit. So, all right. Almost there. All right, people. Most particularly um, for those of y'all that have never checked out the show, welcome to the Onyx Report. It's a program that critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society across age, region, sex, and profession. I'm your host, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, Black Male Studies Scholar and Black Male Advocate. Uh, in this program, we examine current events and major issues using an empirically driven Black masculinist theoretical lens, thus including such concepts as the Black male dual economy, anti-Black misandry, phallicism, subordinate male target hypothesis, and the Black dynarchy. Our goal is to remind people, including Black men themselves, of their humanity. Join us every Wednesday at 5 Pacific, either on YouTube or Interlight Radio. Uh, next week, I will likely I think I have an interview set up 
um, but I want to make sure I have the, the brother's full information before I announce it. But uh, nonetheless, uh, just trying to get some thought across, some context for a lot of the things we're seeing. Um, BGS, I see you up in there. What's going on? Um, Eric Hudson, what's up? Shop Talk. Appreciate y'all coming through. The one, appreciate that. Um, just to also let you know before we jump into, uh, I think I announced before that I was going to start a film review series at the request of uh, some of my supporters. So I will be starting that. Actually, I'm going to record my first video right after this. Um, and we'll be dealing with, let me see. So the first film we're going to touch on, I'm actually going to end up doing two tonight. Uh, let me see where to go. Here we go. So we're going to end up doing two tonight. And this, if you haven't seen it, uh, is Lawrence Fishburne film. It's called Always Outnumbered, Always Outgunned, written by Walter Mosley. Very powerful film about black men, black manhood, um, coming into one's manhood, the whole deal. So it's, it's, it's a very powerful piece. If you haven't seen it, I recommend you. I haven't looked for it. I know I have it on DVD. Damn it. This thing is so sensitive. Um, hold on. I have it on DVD, but if you haven't, uh, see if you can find it. I'm not sure if Netflix has it. I haven't looked in a minute. I apologize. But it's definitely a piece that you want to check out. Now, um, the brothers that asked me to do, you know, films were particularly brothers who, you know, sitting at home with their kids, especially their sons. And they wanted some films th that they could recommend, as well as some talking points, some some questions and dialogue that they can have. So um, that's what this uh, review uh, series will be. And so uh, especially to my twenty dollar you know, per month Patreon members, it'll be available to you. I'm going to do about two films a month. Um, and like I said, I'm going to do this one tonight. I'm also going to watch The Banker tonight. I've been trying to get to that, but I haven't been able to. And I'll be doing a, a review of that as well. But again, the structure of it is designed for you to be able to sit with your kids, especially uh, your sons, and be able to have some dialogue about uh, ideas, about issues. And the way I do it with my son, for those of you you know who catch me on, on Facebook, I usually talk about it. Um, I include family history. You know what I mean? I kind of string in, you know, stories about family, you know, examples, issues that cater to the values that I want him to have. Uh, so, you know, that, there's plenty of opportunity to do that. And I'm going to be recommending films that I think will be useful, particularly to brothers that uh, want to have those dialogues. Um, Joe Average said he watched it on YouTube. Hopefully it's still there. Thanks for shouting that out. If it is, Check it out. It's a very powerful piece um, that deals with black manhood. Um, and it's interesting, especially some of the issues that are happening. I think it's, it's filmed in L.A. Uh, you know, it's about a brother who gets out of prison and is trying to you know, take care of himself. And he ends up, you know, being a mentor. He ends up being a friend and he ends up, you know, dealing with a number of people that he ends up teaching and guiding in his own way. And so um, it's a very powerful piece. Like I said, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, but like I said, the second one after that will be The Banker. So if you're interested in that, join the Patreon uh, $20 a month club and you'll have direct access to those film reviews um, and we'll go from there. So just something to check out. Uh, what's up, Bishop? What's going on? Salute to you as well. Ray, what's what? What's the word? Uh, Damon Harris, what's happening? 
Thanks for the links, Damon. Uh, Damon's always sending me links about uh, Philly, uh, but there's some very powerful issues going on in Philly. So I appreciate that. Um, so anyway, uh, so that's that. So check that out when you get a chance. Um, and I think you'll dig it. All right. Um, I wanted to start just a kind of short informal series too, um, at the beginning of my videos, just to shout, you know, certain issues out, certain men out in particular, um, in terms of what's going on in the world. And it's really random. It's not exhaustive. So if I don't catch something that you think is important, definitely shoot it to me. Uh, first out, I just wanted to kind of acknowledge, uh, the passing of, um, here we go. Mr. Earl Graves, um, uh, current CEO of the, well, his, his son took over as current CEO of Black Enterprise, but just passed a few days ago. So I wanted to kind of shout that out. If you're interested in checking out more on him, please do so. Uh, also check out, and I know we were talking about this, people have been talking about it, but shout out to Bill Withers. Uh, Bill Withers passed away recently. I didn't pull a pickup front for him, but uh, definitely check out uh, Bill Withers and, and celebrate his life, listening to his music uh, with your family, especially if you're locked in behind closed doors. Um, um, I think you might enjoy Bill if you haven't checked him out before. And if you have, celebrate him all over again and just listen to his music. Um, so shout out to him. Um, also, and again, this is just really random. But whenever I run across brothers that I think needed to be shouted out, um, that's really all this is. All right. So next up on that is some brothers out in Sacramento. Um, again, some of you may have seen this on my YouTube page. Um, I mean, my Facebook page, three black chefs feed thousands for free in Meadow, uh, Meadowview, Sacramento, amid coronavirus shutdown. So these brothers here, Mike Harris, Willis Webster, and uh, Barry Accius, Accius, I might be pronouncing that wrong. I probably am. But uh, shout out to those brothers, you know, actually taking their expertise and helping people. Um, and they so they founded uh, this, I, I guess it's a restaurant, three chef, three black chefs, and they're out there feeding people. You know, and these are the kind of stories that even if you see them in the news, they're not often centered the way they really should be, um, especially in regard to black men, because we all know that uh, our image, our depiction is often uh, quite different, right? So um, I wanted to, to, to have something to say to support those brothers. Uh, shout out to Omar for the support on the Cash App. Much appreciated. All right. Um, gone Postal. Appreciate that. Appreciate that support. <laughs> that picture is classic. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's that's classic. Um, <laughs> so let me see. Um, oh, OK. Most of y'all have probably... Um, seen this situation uh, here, New York, uh, or Detroit bus driver, excuse me. Um, let me see. I got to get more savvy on switching these pictures. But anyway, um, Detroit bus driver ranted about coughing passengers, dies from coronavirus. Um, so shout out to this brother, you know, who passed. And I, and I understand what he was talking about. If you catch him, he did a video where he was talking about his frustrations you know, in terms of, you know, dealing with people who are coughing, who are ill. Um, and it's definitely important because many of us who are working in industries 
Okay, I see it. That's all. Many of us who are working in industries where we're kind of confined to certain spaces, you definitely feel it. I mean, the last week of classes, I know I was frustrated because I sit in a classroom. Um, you know, I have four classes back to back. You know what I mean? For for five hours, I'm sitting in a, an enclosed room with students who are coughing and sneezing and the whole kind of deal. So I definitely felt this brother's frustration, but he actually passed uh, just a few days after he posted that video. So um, shout out to him. Look this article up uh, and find out some more information uh, about him and about what he was talking about. Um, let's see. Also, on a, a different note, um, this is a, a young man that's uh, affiliated with a with a colleague of mine. Um, so I wanted to shout him out, Antonio Travis. Uh, I guess he founded Black Men Rising, Black Men Rising movement in West Dayton. So shout out to him, you know, actually putting something down, trying to help um, younger brothers coming up behind him, uh, especially at a time period like this. That's incredibly important. So I just wanted to kind of shout him out. If you're interested in finding out more, uh, look him up, look up his organization, uh, see what you can find and, and see if you can support if at all possible. Um, so appreciate that. Uh, extended clips. Thank you very much. Um, so, yeah, definitely support the brother if you can. Uh, this one is from across the pond, as they say. This is a uh, an older brother, African brother, who uh, was a retired doctor, and he decided to uh, go back on. You know, he uh, decided to go back in and, and actually begin to help and treat people. His name is Dr. Alpha Sadu. I might be pronouncing that wrong. 68 years old, died Tuesday, uh, I want to say last week, after suffering from an infection for two weeks, his son Danny said in the social media post. So this is in uh, the UK. Uh, but he came out of retirement to help and actually passed providing assistance. So uh, again, you know, these are the kind of stories that we don't often hear. But as black men, and we'll talk about this going inward, as black men are on the front lines in many ways of this virus. We're also on the front lines, helping out as much as possible, right? So shout out to him. Um, so let me see. Now, basically in a nutshell, what I'm talking about today has to do with the ways that race and gender are being framed in the context of this virus and what people are living with, right? So this picture here, and I'm not going to be dealing with this part all night, but this is actually a there's actually a series of videos on TikTok where you had these feminists who are using makeup to make themselves appear like they've been abused to draw attention to the experiences of abused uh, women, particularly um, at a time period where we know that the rates of divorce are going up since the quarantine started, as well as the rates of intimate partner violence. Um, much of the data, however, shows us that the rates of violence are bi-directional, especially in the black community, meaning that the rates from women to men and men to women are pretty much the same. And yet, because of the last five decades of how this has been presented, uh, we don't associate the violence that men experience as being on par. You know, um, shout out Malika, how you doing? Um, so we generally fixate on women's experiences of victimization and abuse, and we ignore men. So no matter what the data says in our collective consciousness, it is primarily a one-way street. 
Uh, and a lot of that, too, needs to be taken into account uh, in terms of, of how we process it, because men haven't had six decades of uh, socialization around seeing themselves as victims of abuse, reporting it, and more importantly, having resources available to them uh, alongside that. Um, so we don't often see that. Uh, we don't we're not you know privy to that. We don't have the resources. Uh, shout out to Cameron. Appreciate that. Shout out to JBA. Also appreciate that support. Um, right. We often don't have those resources made available to us, even when um, such you know, certain resources like being able to call the police, for example, are gender neutral. Um, the way they're implemented, the way the public perceives them, the way we've all been socialized by media. Uh, and even in terms of our academics, what they choose to do projects on, what they get funded for, a lot of it is still very gynocentric. So at the end of the day, when you hear um, rates of domestic violence going up, intimate partner violence going up during the quarantine, most of us immediately assume this is just what men are doing to women. But um, again, if you go back to the 1960s, when you look at the early work that feminists were doing behind, you know, domestic abuse. One of the interesting things they found when they started when they started setting up these shelters was that was that the women themselves didn't, uh, you know, they didn't process it quite the way feminists were looking forward to. You know, women would come into the shelters and talk about how they were just as egregious in terms of committing acts of violence against their partners as the men. Appreciate that, Greg. Um, this was actually, so, so when you talk about, you know, the victimization of women in terms of abuse, they actually had to learn how to frame themselves in a very particular way. It was a language that they actually had to learn over time. Appreciate the support money, Mike. Um, so it was something they had to learn over time. And that's not something that men have ever been really privy to. So I think a lot of the time we don't even process when we experience abuse. We really don't even process it. Um, oh, definitely, Martin. I appreciate the support. And yes, he can definitely look me up and take a class. I'll be looking forward to that. Um, so, you know, we don't we don't generally learn how to process it that way because it's something that we've experienced so much that it, it, we don't even often acknowledge it. Uh, I was writing a paper about it last year. And sometimes I have the TV on when I write, especially if it's late at night to keep me up. And while I'm writing, I saw three instances of abuse between the show I was watching and the commercials. And the, and the show was a cartoon. I mean, I was I was watching Avatar and you know, it was uh, the latest one with the female Avatar whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, shout out Warren, appreciate the support. And you know, she was upset at, at the guy she was dating, kicked over his desk at his job. And I'm so I'm watching this and I'm like, this is so common. It's happening in cartoons and yet, we don't have any opinion about it. So I think even during the quarantine, you know, you, you, you know, and this is some older men used to tell me when I was younger, oh, that's, that's just how they act. You know, you know, just ignore that. That's just, but at the same time, the very same acts that they're often committing that we don't even process if, as forms of abuse, men are being sent to jail on. So this is, this is actually a serious issue that many of us take very lightly. So even though these women came up there to kind of center female abusers, um, it ended up kind of coming across as, as very uh, disingenuous, you know, really came across as them garnering more attention for themselves. But in many ways, again, it obscured the reality that, you know, actually men are experiencing abuse at equal levels. And, you know, again, we don't have an imagination for that. We actually have, in my opinion, we have a very difficult time 
processing female acts of evil, female acts of abuse, female acts of exploitation. We have a very difficult time perceiving it. Most of the time we're oblivious to it. And that's in the general public. That's not even the black community. That's just in general across the board. We have a difficult time processing female acts of evil and we tend to overlook them. And thank you, Aquateki, Legends of Korra, right. Um, so at the end of the day, those are the kind of things that I kind of wanted to point out today because that particular, you know, quote unquote, you know, protest or whatever, you know, they were doing on TikTok um, kind of highlighted a few things for me. Right? And so later what we're going to be looking at are some of the articles that have come out that have made the argument about women and the coronavirus um, and, and the way it's been presented against what we're also hearing in other sources. So we're going to be talking about that in a moment. But before we get to that, I wanted to point out a couple of other things that I saw in the news that kind of got my attention. Um, now, I'm, st I'm still not super savvy on, you know, playing other people's videos and how that comes across. And some of you uh, content creators are, are, are clearer on that than I am. So I'm probably not going to go there just yet until I research it a little further. But if you haven't seen it, this is something you need to check out. This is an article on TMZ. Um, and this is a prison inmate who's posting, you know, a video from his cell. Right. And he, and, and so on the right side of the picture, you can actually see, um, his, his, this is the gentleman talking here and right next to him is his cellmate who's in bed, immobile, incapable of moving. Really, uh, appreciate that Patreon support black Knight, incapable of moving and coughing up a storm while basically ba barely able to speak. Right now, y'all know the way prisons are constructed. You know, people are literally living on top of each other. So, um, you know, the impact of this is going to be ridiculous. And I've been saying this for the last month that the two populations that I think are the most vulnerable and the most dangerous in terms of how much this can in end up impacting both them and the rest of the country are the prisoners and the homeless. And they're connected. You know, homeless are often being arrested for being homeless. You know, the incarcerated often get out, don't have anywhere to go and end up being homeless, particularly in cities, in urban centers like, you know, New York and Los Angeles. These populations are high, just they're, they're, they're easily exposed. They're underreported upon. And so, you know, again, by the time we start to even see videos like this, it's probably 10 times worse than we think. So in this particular interview, you can actually hear him. And he's asking, you know, his cellmate, he's like, yo, you want me to call in the, 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 the cops? You want me to bring them in here? And the cellmate's like, nah, that, what they going to do? You know, so, so he's saying we're just sitting in one place being exposed and dying, you know. Um, 176 watching, uh, please hit the like button. Subscribe if you haven't before. Share the video. We appreciate that. Um, thanks for the shout out, BGS. Um, but yeah, they do have some smartphones. Uh, you know, I have family that have been in prison. They've had some smartphones at, at times. Um, so, it, and this is definitely not something you can tell that many of these in, uh, these prisons want broadcast out there. They don't want prisoners broadcasting. Even just the quality of life in general is not something they want broadcasted. But at a time like this, where you have, you know, these men being exposed and, you know, potentially dying without any public record, that definitely goes against uh, what they want to be seen doing. Um, so that said, uh, definitely check that out if you get a chance. 
uh, it's definitely, you know, kind of confirming some 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 heavy concerns that I've had um, about what's going on here. Because even, you know, report uh, shows like Democracy Now, you know, are reporting that there are about 130 deaths per day that are not being reported in the media across the country. They said in New York, there were 500 uh, fire department workers that have, um, I think they had either reported in, I think they reported in sick, 20% of the New York police officers been out sick and they reported that, if, you know, uh, African-Americans are dying six times more from the virus than other groups. So these are the kind of things that are happening right now. And much of the time, um, the reporting is starting to come around. But as I'm going to, you know, get into as we go, part of my concern with this is the way it's being presented. So in other words, in the white community, let me see if I can enlarge this a little bit. Um, I should say in the mainstream community, what we have happening, this is really, I have a new, uh, mouse and I'm not getting along with it just yet. So bear with me. There we go. Um, so in the mainstream community, what we have is this kind of, you know, idea that it's starting to become part of the conversation that race is important as it's, you know, in terms of the virus, um, in the black community, it's a little different. What we we tend to have is a dynamic where, if it's if it's something that impacts women, it's isolated, and we talk about women as as the primary victims. So, for example, if you're going to talk about breast cancer, I think it's somewhere between two and four percent of breast cancer patients in the United States are men, black men, in terms of the black community's you know, experience with breast cancer. The overwhelming majority are black women. So when you hear breast cancer mentioned in the black community, it's overwhelmingly focused on black women, which I don't think too many men have any problem with whatsoever. Uh, if you were to talk about single parent status and heads of households, overwhelmingly, that tends to be black women. That is what it is. But when it comes to what black men often experience, it's interesting what happens. There's a shift in the language. And the shift is that now we have to talk about these issues as black problems. So in other words, when it comes to gender, it's only applied to black women for the most part. And when it comes to black men, it becomes a black problem. So you'll see a lot of reports right now that are saying the exposure to the virus is, is, a, is a black problem. It's just a racial issue and blacks are more are, are suffering. And that's that's the kind of dynamic. But when you actually begin to look at the data, what we're finding is that it is overwhelmingly black male. Right. It is overwhelmingly black male in terms of the, the death rates. And, and so you, you actually have to find sources that are, um, what's up, Ian? Good to see you in here. Appreciate that support, um, putting the word out. Thank you. Dr. Basil's in here. For those of you not familiar, uh, you can check out a couple of interviews I've done with him. Uh, we're going to be doing some more work. So look out for more Dr. Basil. Uh, but anyway, so that's the dynamic, often the way it plays in the black community. When it comes to gender, it's primarily feminized. When it comes to men, it's a communal issue. Uh, and that becomes the framework for how men are dealt with. So even, so here we're looking at, and this was as of, I want to say this was yesterday. And this data changes so quick that uh, it, it easily becomes, um, you know, it, it passe within a matter of 24 hours. So I think as of yesterday, this is what I saw happening but uh, the numbers keep going up, especially in areas like New Jersey, New York, New Orleans, Milwaukee, um, areas, too, where we see a larger population of, of black urban folk. This is what you're seeing happening. Right. So that said, 
we in many ways do not know how to talk about black men. We don't know how to look at black men and prime and 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 center them in terms of um, those who are experiencing victimization. Um, we're told that you know black men can't be victims. Black men, you know, need to be stoic, need to be quiet. They need to center other people. Even sometimes there were articles a couple years ago that were out talking about how black men take up too much of the conversation when we talk about in the incarcerated. You know, so we're constantly seeing black men kind of pushed to the side in many instances again. So it's depicted as either a racial issue or if it is gendered, it, it's only gendered in regard to how it, it impacts females. And I say females specifically because I'm talking about, you know, women and girls across age. So this is the dynamic. And so as this coronavirus is ramping up and it is ramping up, it has not reached its zenith yet. Um, the way it's depicted is in many instances as just a racial issue. And so we're having these real vague conversations about uh, helping black and brown people and, and, and what are we gonna do to regard, no, this is, this is actually a, a, a serious issue that is impacting black men. But even when you look at how it's impacting other areas like Italy, it's still very much androcentric. It's still very male centered in terms of those who are being impacted by it. Um, so definitely keep in mind and, and really focus on articles that, you know, really get into the numbers. And I'll show you why in a moment. What's up, Kendra? Good to have you in here. Hope you're well. Um, so there is a call going out in many areas for more information on race, more data on race in terms of how we're experiencing this. Uh, appreciate that support, Joshua. Um, Patreon. Thank you. Um, there's a call going out. And so you even have, you know, elected officials calling for more da data on race. I, gotta, I, I still have to stop touching my face, damn it. Um, and, and, and it's interesting that you don't hear them asking for a cross section of information on race and gender. And that's what needs to happen. It needs to be both. We need detail down to race and gender, because, again, if it's depicted as just a black issue, it gets dismissed as a black issue and the specific focus black males really do need kind of goes out the wayside. Right. So something to consider in terms of uh, what's going on. Right. Um, let me see. And as we talk about intimate partner homicide and violence, I mentioned earlier that that's been going up. Uh, I want to show you. Here we go. A case that kind of highlights what I mean. Um, here we go. All right. Some of you may, again, have seen this when I posted it um, a while back, All right? So this is a case that took place, I wanna say last week, where a woman shot her husband because he got a hold of her phone, All right? How much of this is really articulated as intimate partner homicide? You know, again, this is not really what we think about. This is not what's centered as relevant to the discussion, but it nonetheless is an example of what we're talking about here. Right. And I call it out as intimate partner homicide because so many of us don't think of it that way. You know, so again, when you, when you see the articles talking about the, the rise in domestic violence cases, most people aren't thinking about cases like this, right? 
So it's alleged that uh, Washington uh, had a verbal argument with her husband over her phone. It became physical during the altercation. It's alleged that she fatally shot her husband with a handgun. Right. These things are happening every day. You know, uh, cases where you have women pouring bleach down their boyfriend's throats, things of that. And yet. It just kind of goes by the wayside. Right. Now, you can probably figure that if he had her phone and it had to get to this extent, that he probably found some things on it that she didn't want found. I think we can all kind of guess where that likely went, but I don't have that data, so I can't speak to that directly. What I do know is no matter what um, was on her phone, it wasn't worth his life. Um, and yet these are the kind of situations we're looking at. Right. So that's the kind of dynamic that I want to point out. Um, and so we actually have to find ways to make sure that we center black men because no one else is going to. Right. Nobody's going out their way to. Um, and I think it's important that we learn to do so because otherwise we, we remain silent. This is an image uh, some of you may have seen online as well. And this I wanted to shout him out earlier. I had him posted a little later in my notes. Um, but this was a, a sister on Facebook who was talking about her brother who passed away. And again, this was several days ago. Um, but he, this is a brother who died alone. He took the virus seriously, but he still caught it. Gave, they gave him very little. He had less than three days on the ventilator. Um, and then apparently he, he passed uh, by himself. And I think this is happening to a number of black men. And there's no dialogue. I see you, BGS. Yeah, 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 I went Mayweather. I was going to include a picture of her, um, but, it, you know, it's... You play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, as one of my boys said. So, yeah, Yahya Mayweather, Mayweather, uh, you know, attacked her, her, her boyfriend's uh, guest at his house and whatnot, stabbed her several times, and uh, ended up getting arrested. Uh, I didn't follow it after that, so I, I, I heard something about her lawyer saying there was some uh, additional information. I just didn't, I didn't get into it. But you're absolutely right. It's still the type of violence that. Um, we can be talking about, but we often don't know how to in regard to men. And much of the time we're even socialized, you know what I mean, to not perceive it as violence. But this is a different type of violence, the, the type of obliviousness that our society has to what, you know, many individual black men are facing, the kinds of stories that need to be heard. This is obviously from Twitter. Um, and I was so moved at just, you know, what, you know, what the sister said about her brother, just, it, you know, it was like, man, how many of us are suffering in silence? I mean, I spoke to a colleague of mine last week and he's, you know, he just gotten a divorce. He, he moved to a, a new city, no friends, no family. And it took me a week to get him on the phone. When I finally did, he was like, oh, man, everything is good. You know, I'm doing my thing. I said, well, why didn't you get back to me? He said, oh, my bad. I was I was in bed sick all week. So this is after the quarantine started. He spent a week in bed sick with all of the symptoms that we talk we talk about for the coronavirus. And I asked him, I said, well, did you get checked out? And he was like, well, no, nah, I just kind of went through it myself and whatever. And, you know, but again, just like, you know, this brother here, had he passed, he would have been sitting in his apartment by himself. And it, it's my suspicion that, you know, because we often don't have the familial wealth, the inheritance, the wealth to, to actually, you know, not have to work in many instances, that, you know, black men who are working, who are supporting family, who are going out every day, 
and having to be exposed because we don't have the wealth to not do so, um, that there are many of us that are suffering in silence, right? I've had brothers reach out to me in the last week who are doing all kinds of things to support their kids, you know, to support their families, um, often with no acknowledgement, right? No acknowledgement. And many of them, if they come up sick, they come up sick by themselves, right? Not a lot of support. So these are the kind of stories that I want us to start focusing on because these are the kind of things that brothers are dealing with, right? These are the kind of situations that we're dealing with. Often the no fanfare, no support, and not a lot of resources, right? Hold on one moment. So, and again, I know how quickly these numbers change. So, you know, forgive me if they're uh, a, a day or two outdated, uh, but it is what it is, you know. Um, this is what we're looking at, right? Sorry about that. Um, so we're looking at a situation where, you know, in places like Milwaukee, we're seeing high numbers of us being infected. Right. Notice how the information is still not qualified by race and gender. It's just primarily race. OK. Ian said, I have a classmate at the university I attended who was at my house with his wife. And two weeks later, she shot him dead in the stomach with no evidence of physical violence. Jesus. Right. That's right, Dad said. Nameless heroes, nameless protagonists. Right. So these are the kind of things we're seeing. And, you know, we're grappling with what this means um, and what can be done about it. But again, if you're dealing with a, a, a population that's fairly um, it's relatively poor in terms of wealth um, and, and has to keep working on the front lines on the basis of what they're experiencing. This tends to happen. And again, in terms of the homeless and the incarcerated, African-Americans make up a significant portion of both. I had a report that came out over a month ago said that or it was about two months ago said that African-Americans make up 40 to 50 percent of the country's homeless especially in states like California. And a lot of that, again, is tied to the incarcerated. A lot of them are those who are getting out of prison with nowhere to go, right? And even if they have housing vouchers, they're still not being accepted. So these are the kind of situations that we're grappling with, you know, so that lack of, of wealth, that lack of familial wealth, that lack of inheritance, that lack of standing, lack of employment, especially in regard to black men, directly impacts us and it makes us extremely vulnerable. It didn't even look, it didn't even take the coronavirus for us to be vulnerable. We're in a position where our vulnerability is, 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 you know, it exposes us on a lot of different fronts, you know, and it does have an impact on health. So one of the things we're hearing a lot of people talking about is, uh, you know, of course, who are, who's most vulnerable to the coronavirus. And you're talking about people with diabetes, obesity issues, you know what I mean? High blood pressure. And of course, the first thing we do is, you know, we start criticizing each other and that is what it is, you know, but we start talking about how poor our diet is. Very little discussion on food deserts. If you're not familiar with that, look that up. 
count the number of grocery stores that sell fresh food in black environments, right? How that impacts the health of a people, right? The, the percentage of fast food. But look, here in Fresno, Fresno is a, is a very small city. Um, it's a small, big city, if you will. And one of the things that, you know, you can see is you can drive up just certain streets and come into elite populations, drive down a couple streets, you come into poor populations. There are neighborhoods you can drive through where you'll see mansions on one block, two blocks over, you see project housing or housing that's, you know, mostly available to those who are, um, you know, not who were below working class, right? The working poor, if you will. Fresno is just kind of stacked up on top of each other in that kind of way. And so, you know, one of the things you can do is very easily count the number of grocery stores in the northern area of Fresno. And you got people who this is a 10 minute drive away from some of the poorest areas of Fresno. And you got people who've never driven that 10 minutes up uh, north of um, Herndon, north of Mies. These are some of the major streets where you can see the class segregation that kind of takes place. And when you go north of those areas in Fresno, you can see these upper quality, you know, high profile grocery stores with plenty of fresh food, fresh vegetables, so on and so forth. And then, of course, you can go down to southern Fresno and you can find stores where more, you know, the, the working poor tend to shop, has far less fresh food, fresh vegetables. And of that that they have, it's really low quality in terms of that. So those kind of things contribute to our overall health health status, as well as, you know, the kind of areas that we're moved into. So you got higher levels of pollution. You know what I mean? These are all factors that contribute to our health standing. It's not just a matter of whether you go to the gym every day, you know, and, and I think we tend to oversimplify these issues. We also have to be able to look at them on a structural level because they impact us on a structural level. But what we often tend to do is individualize the problem and make it strictly about you know, how well each one of us is on top of their diet and exercise. And I'm not saying that that's not important, but I am saying that that's, that can't be the totality of the conversation. Aquatechi, appreciate the support. Thank you on the cash out. So these are the kind of issues we got to learn how to talk about in a, in a more nuanced way that deals with some of the data, because the impact on us when anything happens, if your feet are close to the ground economically, and you have few political options, you know, you know, you, you have you're in a situation where you are structurally vulnerable. Anything that hits us is going to adversely hit us more. I mean, one of the most popular phrases we hear from the African-American community is that we are the canaries in the coal mine. Well, the reason we're the canaries in the coal mine is because our feet are closest to the ground. So it doesn't take much to knock us down. Uh, and in that instance, the virus is merely exposing uh, problems like lack of access to health care, um, you know, it, it, all those kind of issues, lack of access to quality food, lack of access to consistent employment. You know, these areas, it, these problems that we're already facing just makes us more vulnerable when it happens. Right. And so when you see videos and I think that, that this is posted on my page, shout out to Damon. I think he sent me this one, too, uh, of them bringing in refrigerated trucks in Philadelphia because they can't handle the morgue overflow of bodies, right? I think BGS loaded a video up the other day where he's showing you also them loading bodies into an 18-wheeler. You know, when you see those kind of situations in areas that are overwhelmingly African-American, you know, particularly in urban areas, it, it, it makes sense when you see it from a structural standpoint. So, you know, I'm saying that to say before you, you know, just jump on each other about what we're not doing individually, 
please pay attention to some of the structural issues. Um, so, all right. So let me get out of this real quick. Let me see if I can find it. Um, where did it go? Bear with me. You know what? Before I jump into that, let me at least highlight some of the health issues. I know many of you have seen this, but for the sake of uh, making sure we're all on the same page, right? The death statistics released in regard to Louisiana residents, right? So they said 0.9% uh, of the deaths are Asian, 2% are, are identified as Hispanic, Latino, 28.6% white, and 70.5% black, right? So I'll see Tyler um, asking a question about um, connection between the coronavirus and the Tuskegee syphilis experiment and the eugenics movement. I couldn't say, you know, I mean, I have my suspicions, but again, I, I like to speak from fact. So until I can actually provide the data that verifies that, the most I can say is it's very reminiscent of what we've seen with the Tuskegee experiment. Um, but the interesting part about it is it, it, because, again, we're so vulnerable, it didn't even have to be intentional. It's strict. I mean, just the lack of access to the types of stable resources that other communities enjoy would ensure these same results. So if you're looking at the list, you can see on the right hypertension, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, obesity, cardiac disease, pulmonary issues, congestive heart failure. I posted this, I, I want to say fall last year, I put up a chart of the top 10 causes of death for black men. And in terms of heart disease, I think the last year was the first year black men had actually superseded black women. Now, that wasn't because they just, you know, weren't dying prior to that. It, it was actually more that they were dying from other issues at much earlier ages. Um, and black women were reaching later and, you know, later ages and then dying of, hyper, of, of heart disease issues. So last year was actually the first year we actually saw black men dying at higher rates um, across the board from cancer to heart disease and a number of other issues, even down to homicide. Right. So we started to see it come, kind of come into fruition last year in a way we hadn't really seen uh, in quite some time. And then we get to this, right? So this hits us and many of us are extremely vulnerable, right? So these are the kind of things that end up impacting us that much more. Goshen, appreciate the support. Thank you very much. Um, but I wanted to kind of point that out just so I can get that on the record in terms of you know, how many of us are experiencing that. And this is Louisiana, but you can also look into Milwaukee, New Jersey, and New York and see similar kinds of, of things in regard to black men. But there is an article that I'm trying to, I know I posted it in here. Where did it go? Let me see. Uh, it was the article behind what made me want to do this. And I'm going to shout out Jonathan Lockhart here for this incredible quote while I look for the article. And he gives you a good definition of what anti-black racism is, right? Being 30%, 37% of a 2.3 million 
male prison population getting paid $6 an hour to dig graves for COVID-19. So this was a report I had posted as well, where you actually see black men, prisoners, you know, um, digging graves, mass graves in the East Coast uh, for those who are dying. All right. Hold on. Where did it go? Oh, okay. I think I see it. Okay. So this is the article that kind of got me thinking a little earlier. And it took me back to something I've quoted to you guys from before from Dr. Tommy Curry. Right. So Tom, Tommy Curry did an interview on uh, Yvette Carnell's show. This might be a couple of years ago at this point. Still an epic interview if you haven't seen it. And it was in response to Very Smart Brothers article on black men being the white men of the black community, which is ridiculous. I wrote a blog piece dismissing that as well. But uh, Dr. Tommy Curry came on and interviewed. And one of the things he pointed out is he made the argument that with many feminists, what they were doing was they were attempting to make attention outweigh death, right? They were attempting to make attention outweigh death. And so in the midst of the coronavirus, we start to see more articles that were highlighting the vulnerability of Black women in particular. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to articles that, you know, highlight um, various demographics in the Black community to talk about what we're experiencing. That's not my issue. But what I noticed that they did in this article is they kept it very theoretical, right? It was based on intersectionality, you know, and that was in the theory that kind of undergirded it, uh, which of course comes about in the late 1980s. And it's designed to highlight black women's experiences in terms of race, class, sex, and gender. And they've since diversified how many other areas they count in that dynamic. What's interesting is the early theory itself suggested that the difference between black men and women is that black men were privileged on the basis of gender. But again, theory, right? They didn't offer a whole lot of data. In fact, as a matter of fact, it's not until you start to deal with other scholars, uh, like I think it's Darren Hutchinson, definitely Athena Moutois, where they actually start to look up the data. And Athena Moutois is one of the first to kind of point out, wait a minute, you know, actually empirically speaking, that argument doesn't hold water. But nonetheless, it's what became popular. And then white women in particular, uh, white feminists really got hold of the concept of intersectionality and they kind of centered themselves in it. So you'll actually you know, hear people like Kimberly Crenshaw, who comes up with the concept, bemoaning the fact that it's really been appropriated you know, uh, from black women. But again, when you actually look at the data, you know, they're often not the most vulnerable community or demographic. Um, but they didn't make the argument on the basis of data. They made the argument on the basis of common sense. And if you've grown up like I did watching, you know, the color purple and, you know, uh, for colored girls. And, you know, if you've grown up, you know, seeing these films, film after film about women being abused and attacked by, you know, these monstrous men, then on a common sense level, you're like, well, yeah, OK, I can see how women are, you know, experiencing this on a level that men probably aren't, you know, you, you kind of go with the flow until somebody sits you down and starts showing you the numbers. So whether you're talking about rape, whether you're talking about incarceration, whether you're talking about abuse, whether you're talking about employment, whether you're talking about income, wealth distribution, on every scale we're looking at from cancer to heart disease to homicide, it's actually black men 
who are the most vulnerable. And it's a difficult thing to process, especially if you spent, you know, what, um, a couple of decades in higher education being indoctrinated with a very specific idea about who's the most vulnerable. So this article comes out about women being hit the hardest. And again, it's primarily theory. Um, let me see. It's now this was a piece that was done by Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. I might be mispronouncing that. And Lauren Leader, uh, their opinion contributors, and they're writing this um, really from a theoretical standpoint. And they point out in the article, you know, there's women in healthcare who are hitting the brunt, you know, experiencing the brunt of this. Um, you know, and I'm not dismissing that. There are definitely a lot of women nursing. If you look at the graduation uh, fields uh, for for black folk in particular, nursing is 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 you know one of the primary fields that black women go into, followed up by business. Whereas for black men, it's primarily business. So there's definitely a lot of nurses. I'm not dismissing that. Um, it says 40% of mothers in the U.S. are primary breadwinners. They're the majority majority of service workers. Two thirds of America's minimum wage workers. And they're more likely to be waitresses, cooks, hotel housekeepers. They're now out of work. So the article is framing vulnerability based on the percentage of people who are in vulnerable positions. But the difference between this piece and some of the other articles that some of you have likely seen, and I've tried to make it a point to post these. Um, right, let me pull this up here. Gotta learn to transition between these a little faster. All right, you start to see um, some of these articles. Shout out to Michael Spates, sent this out to me, right? And you start to see these articles that are fixating on the actual data around who's actually dying, right? And I want you to pay attention to these articles because um, what can actually happen is you can be kind of swayed based on a common sense approach that's rooted in, you know, generic ideas. This one is actually, you know, based in Italy, right? But try to look for articles that focus on the actual data, right? They actually start counting, um, so to speak. And it's, it's, it is terrible that we have to get to this point where we actually look at people counting the dead, but it's important. Because what it begins to do, shout out to John Manifest for sending me this one, right? It begins to give us a, a more specific analysis on who's actually dying. Now, part of the reason for this, too, is you got a lot of black men, again, who are not being accounted for, whether they're ex-cons, whether they're homeless, whether they're, you know, working illegal, you know, if you can call it occupations, you know, it's it's even though we can say on paper who should be most vulnerable based on what kinds of occupations they're in, that doesn't necessarily control for who actually is doing the most dying. And if you're in areas that are un that are kind of uh, underreported upon, the numbers are even that much more esoteric and difficult to get a hold of. So again, we don't know how many people who are in prisons, how many people who have just been released, how many homeless. We don't know the numbers for that. But we do know that because Black folk populate, you know, the majority of those populations, but, and at the same time, um, you know, especially if you deal with the homeless, they tend to overwhelmingly be male across the board. Uh, we actually don't know how many are doing the dying. So I want you to be careful about these articles, actually try and go through them and look at the statistics they're pulling from, because 
you know, this kind of common sense approach to who should be most vulnerable is kind of dangerous because what it does is it reinforces the idea that, you know, again, we don't need data. We can just assume who's got it worse. And much of that is informed by the last few decades of media, mainstream media entertainment that tells us who is vulnerable. And those are dangerous because that often can, can actually end up impacting um, you know, political movements, policy, because we have this common sense idea as to who needs the assistance, who needs the attention. And that's what all of this comes down to, right? When you really get down to these media articles and these think pieces, a lot of it comes down to people rallying for their demographic in regard to resources and policy, whether it's federal, state, private, you know, it, it, it comes grants, you know, it comes down to who can garner the most of these resources and use it to their benefit. But it's not based on who's actually the most vulnerable. And for most metrics, you end up coming down to black men as the most vulnerable. But as we're raised in, a, you know, in this kind of society that tells men we have to be stoic, we got to be able to take it on the chin and walk it off you're often not going to hear black men, you know, being the first ones to espouse their vulnerability. That's not how we've been socialized. You know, even even the work that I'm doing in terms of focusing on black men as, as being um, in a vulnerable situation took a lot for me to transition because I was I wasn't socialized to identify uh, black men in that manner. I mean, you can say a few words on prison, then you got to quickly move on. That was about it. But it really it really was a process for me to actually begin to see just how vulnerable black men were across the board. Right. And you'll have black men themselves immediately tell you, well, that's not important. We got to dismiss that. We don't want to be we don't want to be victims here. Well, it's not about wanting to be victims. It's about what the reality actually is. What is it that we're actually experiencing and how many of us even know it? And I'm talking as well about, you know, faculty. Right. Because we don't get that. Often we, we, we ourselves don't know how vulnerable we are. So here you have a quote. Right. And this is from. Uh, Representative Frederica Wilson. Right. And she says, in so many ways, the COVID-19 pandemic is a gender crisis. We're disproportionately on the front lines as healthcare workers, food service workers, groceries, so on and so forth. But so here you have, you know, this person who's got an official position, who's again running on a common sense kind of idea of victimization, but not really looking at the numbers, right? And we actually have to be able to challenge that with data. It's, we have to challenge it with data because these are the kind of things that transition into policy. And if you're not on top of the language, if you're not on top of pressuring people with what we actually can show, then when policy is passed, it disproportionately may leave you out. And black men understand this experience intimately because we've been left out on many different levels. Even within the black community, when we start to talk about policies that we rally together to push for, again, we don't often control for gender. That's not an argument that we've been trained to push. You've not he heard very many people talk about something like reparations and really ask the question, do black men have an argument that goes beyond the surface in regard to what they've been systemically excluded from? Do we incorporate things like incarceration 
you know, or even early on when it was just, uh, you know, prisoner worker programs? Do we talk about those things specifically when we're dialoguing about what solutions will will help the black community? Right. All right. Shout out to Mark Swift. Appreciate that support. Thank you. All right. These are the kind of conversations we need to learn how to have. And we need to learn how to have it unapologetically. Right. We need to learn how to have it unapologetically, because without our contribution to the dialogue, what we end up finding is that black men end up on the bottom again, asking to be to to play a chivalrous role in centering other demographics in the discourse and not controlling for ourselves, not actually posing the question for ourselves. So in as much as I'm happy to see um, any kind of article that highlights the black community, because we know it's not a guarantee that the community itself will be fixated upon. I'm still a little leery when I see titles like this. And when you read through the article, they're quick to you know, associate black male deaths as just black deaths, right? But I can guarantee you if the numbers were reversed and it was black women dying in the highest numbers, it wouldn't be listed as a black issue. It would be listed as a black women's issue and that would be the center point, right? Shout out to Kendra. She's dropping it in there, right? So this is the kind of thing we have to deal with. And we have to be very vocal. We have to use the data. We have to raise the issues and we have to be specific. We have to call out what we know and be very fervent about it. The media is not intricately aware of the goings ons within the black community. So, you know, and even if they were, I don't think they'd contribute anything positive to that. Um, and part of the other reason, too, is when you look at our representatives, and this goes back to K through 12, this goes back to high school graduation rates, which in which in turn impact college graduation rates, which in turn impact graduate school um, graduation rates. You tend to find more and more women in these positions than men in the black community. So when you have a kind of gynocentric, you know, black gynarchal framework and your educated elite come out fixating on black women as in, based on intersectionality as the primary victims of you know any type of social abuse or exclusion what you're going to get is policy right and praxis that centers on black women and girls and there's not going to really be a whole lot of room for specifying the roles of black men and black boys because that's not how they've been trained regardless of the data right so take into account the original intersectional argument, as I pointed out earlier, and how that impacts the discourse on black males. Um, take into account how it contributes to the disposability of black boys and black men, an absence in the numbers, an absence in the data, an absence, an absence in the discourse um, based on a theoretical, quote unquote, common sense approach to victimization that leaves black males invisible in many of these discourses. And when you have something as, as impactful and, and, and sudden as COVID-19, it's not that we don't have the data on who's actually suffering the most. It's because the theory we have, you know, predetermines what we're going to pay attention to. So I've said this before, 
it's 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 not that seeing is believing. It's that believing is seeing. So if you believe based on the theory you've been introduced to that the only thing that's important to discuss are the experiences of black girls and black women, then even when the data shows you something different, it's going to go one in, through one ear and right out the other. Because until somebody challenges that with a new question, we dismiss it. It doesn't exist. So we have to push for black male specificity in these discussions. And I do it across the board. Any subject that comes up, my first question is, how are black men experiencing this? Because I think ultimately what we're looking at um, is, is, you know, really the advent of a caste system in the black community. Shout out to my boy, Dr. Ronald Neal. We have a caste system in regard to importance, in regard to, you know, focus, in regard to policy, in regard to just overall, even theoretical discourse on racial and gender terms. Our caste system, you know, prioritizes black women and girls and puts boys and men in a position of being secondary, if not tertiary or below. So again, the dynamic is when we talk about women and girls, we focus on them as women and girls. When we talk about men, those are just black issues. Either context, you have an obliviousness and an erasure of black male voices and black male experiences. And you actually have to be able to see the faces and hear the voices of black men before it becomes something that people take seriously. So I go back, you know, and this is why I showed this brother's picture, right? This is why I showed his picture, because if you can imagine, you know, not seeing a news report on this or these kind of issues and just hearing, you know, you know, however many, you know, black men died today, that's the end of that. But I want people to see the faces of these black men. I want them to hear the voices. I want people to, to, to know what we're experiencing and what we're being told is not worth being reflected upon. I want you to look at the faces of the people dying. And much of the time, these are men supporting families, sacrificing themselves to protect others with no acknowledgement. While people play politics and use numbers for every other demographic except for black men themselves. We have to actually push back against this. Otherwise, it didn't happen. You know what I mean? So I want us to be able to challenge this. I want us to be able to open up the dialogue and approach it in a different way. And I want us to be aggressive about advocating for black men. This is what I said a few shows ago. I also want us to be able to have a political agenda that actually is specific to the needs of black men. And there's no more important time to do this than now. Because even when we talk about a black agenda, outside of incarceration, there's really no mention of black men. And that's a problem because actually black men have very specific issues that aren't being addressed, whether we're talking about it in, you know, on the conservative end or the liberal end, Democrats, Republicans, Green Party, you name it. I don't care what party we're talking about. You can talk about this in terms of, of, of reparations. You can talk about this in terms of uh, liberation movements. There's very rarely a very specific acknowledgement of the issues that black men face. 
And that needs to change. And black men are going to have to be the ones to change it because, again, nobody else is coming for us. Right. Shout out to uh, Watkins. Appreciate that support on the cash out. Right. So with that, um, y'all know how I do. I'm going to uh, I'm like I said, I'm going to do I'm probably going to do a video as soon as we get off here on uh, always outnumbered, always outgunned. Then I'm going to watch the banker. And I'll probably do another one by tomorrow, if not uh, Friday at the latest on that one. And again, I'll be doing two films a month. So to my you know, $20 a month patrons uh, on Patreon, you guys will have access to that. Um, and hopefully it'll help you know, structure some dialogue between you and your children, your family members, uh, especially from the vantage point of black men. This is, I'm doing a black masculinist read of a, a variety of key films that I, I think kind of focus and center black men. And so I'm hoping that that will give people um, the talking points, the questions to ask, the dialogue, and some of the historical information that might help um, you actually be able to create a new dialogue, create a new discourse, even within your own families, about the things you've experienced. And once you start to really reflect on the things that, that we're talking about here, it's going to upend your entire world. Nine times out of 10, it's going to upend your entire world because you're actually going to start seeing your grandfather, your father, your sons, your cousins. You're going to start seeing them in terms of what they've experienced in a whole different light. And I guarantee you, you're going to be able to ask new questions that are going to push back on boundaries and push back on people's comfort zones about the way they've interpreted men and boys comfortably for decades. You're going to be in a position to ask new questions and challenge them with inf historical information relevant to black men. That's going to change the dialogue entirely. So I hope you guys are willing to do that. Um, appreciate that, Alan Wiley. Thanks for the support. Um, as you all know, the way I close out, I'm here to tell brothers we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support, wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.